Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are edging towards the end of the week. It's a very exciting weekend for an awful lot of people, not least because uh, there's going to be a four-day exposition, shall we say, uh, by Extinction Rebellion, uh, who are apparently going to try and raise awareness about climate change. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, yeah, because they haven't done that since, what, about four o'clock? Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to be having to deal with that. London Marathon is on. We can't seem to decide whether the London Marathon is a good thing or a bad thing because Extinction Rebellion say uh, they're going to disrupt it. Then they say they're not going to disrupt it. Then they say they might not disrupt it, but they might just go along to help police it. Huh? Why is anybody asking? Coming up later on in the show, we'll be playing you uh, some video uh, that uh, those maniacs from the Grand National put out saying that the police hurt them. Apparently they hurt them when they arrested them, apparently. Uh, they didn't care that our hands were glued together. Apparently they didn't care um, about hurting them when they put their hands behind their back and put handcuffs on them. I told them it felt like they were breaking my wrists. What's wrong with these people? You know, if you demonstrate and glue yourself to things, you might get roughed up by, the, you know, the local fuzz. That's what happens. We'll be talking about that coming up a bit later on. Also, uh, Russian spy ships threatening to sabotage our energy supply. That sounds a bit worrying, doesn't it? Front page of the Daily Telegraph. Isabel Oakshot's here. She's going to be telling us all about that. We're also going to get an expert on ghost ships, Nigel West, to tell us exactly what's going on. Also, as if that wasn't enough, Alex Salmon's coming in as well. Uh, The man that runs the Alba Party, of course, up in Scotland. This is uh, with the background that uh, another arrest may indeed be imminent up in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon is expected, even by her own party, Uh, to be uh, having her collar felt by the police, not least because she's one of three names signing off on the SNP's accounts. The two other names, uh, Mr Beattie, the Treasurer, uh, Mr Murrell, uh, the former Chief Executive and husband of Nicola Sturgeon, and Nicola Sturgeon herself. So since they've both been arrested, you'd probably expect her to be as well, wouldn't you? 0344 499 1000, as if all that isn't enough, we're going to talk about Manchester United and Manchester City uh, and why the ships on their crests may indeed mean that they have links to slavery. We're going to talk about food prices going through the roof. We're going to talk about uh, veterans helping uh, their own selves to uh, do by doing some charity. Some guys have pushed a Land Rover 100 miles uh, by hand. Also, Tim Peake is coming on. He's in Australia. Uh, we're going to ask him about space exploration. And, of course, it's Thursday, so we'll be having some Thursday club action with Helen and Nicholas. I don't know how we're going to fit it all into three hours, but we're going to try very, very hard. 0344 499 1000. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. So, here we are, ready and willing uh, to take on Sir Keir Softy. Sir Softy, he was named yesterday in the House of Commons by Rishi Sunak. Uh, let's welcome Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor, to the show. Isabel, very good morning to you. No one's going to be calling you either Sir or Softy, really, are they? <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I'm so. I'm not going to get that either. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone's ever going to offer me a knighthood, but if they did, I would, I would definitely reject it, because I don't think it would suit me, to be honest. Um, but listen, I think we should talk about this Russian spy ship story, because it's a bit worrying. Front page of the Telegraph today. Um, doesn't surprise me, I suppose, that the Russians are up to no good, but, but tell us what you make of it. Well, I think this is a brilliant story, and I'm really glad that this uh, investigative team has exposed or just cast a little light on 
what defence experts have been worrying about for quite a few years now. Um, now, the focus of the story in, in the coverage has been on a potential plot by the Russians to sabotage our energy supply. Um, so what's been uncovered is the existence of as many as 50, I mean, several dozen so-called ghost ships uh, that are going around masquerading as trawlers or fishing vessels, although they're pretty hefty for mm. that, uh, and are in fact carrying out um, sinister research, uh, which is designed to increase their capability uh, to interrupt our energy supply and other things. It's actually the other things that I and many defence experts are more worried about mm. than potential sabotage of, for example, wind farms. Uh, in particular, the many, many hundreds of thousands of undersea cables on which are basically the whole planet now yes. lies. So there are more than half a million miles of fiber optic cables. 97% of global communication is actually transmitted by these cables. And what is really worrying um, is that they're, they're pretty easy, first of all, to find, and secondly, just to, to sort of snip. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and also they're almost impossible to defend. You can't sort of police people not doing that, can you? Well, there are, there are ways, and I'll come to that, but to give you an idea of the scale of this, in, in any given day, these cables, um, they will transmit some $10 trillion worth of global financial wow. transactions. So they are absolutely vital um, to day-to-day -day life. And the problem is that maps of where they are are readily available. They're generally installed by private companies. And defence experts have long been worried by the potential that those who wish us harm, namely right now the Russians and also, by the way, the Chinese, mm. could simply sever these cables. A um, very interesting report came out back in at the end of 2017, uh, which described how a successful attack on the UK's undersea cables uh, would be an existential threat to our security. Um, the author of that report was one Rishi Sunak. Yeah. He wrote the report for, for Policy Exchange and knows all about this. So what we need, his report argue, is a set of backup cables, so-called dark cables, uh, which would provide some kind of plan B uh, in the event that the worst happens and also potentially some kind of protection zones. So I hope that this expose has shone a spotlight on a problem that in defence circles is very well known about. But mm. I think that, that most people perhaps aren't aware of the extent of our vulnerability. Yes. And at the moment, as far as I can tell from the story itself, this is a kind of watching brief, if you like, from the Russians. But what they could be doing, as you say, is mapping everything that they can in order to do something about it later. Or if things get a bit fiery in Ukraine and they decide that they want to retaliate against Britain in some way. I think it's I think it's much more than a watching brief. I mean, we've seen quite literally there's a watching brief in the form of armed guys standing at the sides of these vessels, yeah. you know, looking out to see if anybody is watching them doing whatever it is that they're up to. Um, you know, this uh, this is a, a whole new terrain for future warfare. Uh, Russia knows that NATO still has maritime supremacy. Um, so what it's going to look at is. Uh, what in defence circles is known as 
asymmetric threats. Mm. So it wants to tackle us in the unexpected way. We're not going to head on for a full kind of war at sea, um, but if they can get us in some kind of more sneaky way, um, then that's what they would like to do. Uh, and it's hugely important that we are one step ahead of them, which I fear at the moment, given that we can't even control the migrant boats coming across the channel, the yeah. idea that we're up to more sophisticated efforts uh, is, is rather fanciful. Well, exactly. And, and there's one particular paragraph in this piece in The Telegraph that is a bit chilling. It says here, details of the Russian sabotage plot in the North Sea emerged from a joint investigation by the public broadcasters of Denmark, Norway, Sweden and Finland because Russia is thought to be drawing up plans in the event of a full-scale war with the West. And you kind of read that and go... Blimey. And also, Ben Wallace apparently has said last year um, that Norway's oil and gas infrastructure is particularly vulnerable to this kind of attack from Russia. So we'd have to assume that so is our own North Sea um, uh, oil and gas business. Absolutely. I think I think we have to assume all of those things. I mean, we've already seen pipelines becoming um, a key focus of, of this war. We don't know quite who did blow up bits of Nord Stream yeah. 2. Um, very, very fascinating suggestions that it was actually the CIA. Um, but absolutely, these things are in the sights of our uh, of our enemies and other hostile states. Um, at least they're rather bigger targets to protect than these millions of miles of underwater mm. cables. At least we, you know, it's very, very that they make for quite solid targets, as it were. Um, but we've got to look at the broad spectrum of this, and we've got to be aware that. In a sense, what's unusual and unexpected about the conflict with Ukraine is that it has been conventional warfare. It has been blood and boots on the ground and bombs mm. and all that old fashioned stuff that people have long thought of constitutes war. Uh, in fact, the next conflict or the way the conflict might escalate and evolve is both undersea and in our skies, and I don't mean um, aircraft, I mean satellites. Yes, exactly, because the, the cyber sort of security of this country is now probably something that even the military say is a bigger th uh, pr problem if it's disrupted than actual real military attacks, because that's where everything is now kind of stalled, where the entire country and its economy is based on everything which is in a cloud of some kind or inside a wire of some kind or inside something that can be, you know, blocked. And so that is a, is a massive problem. But the trouble is we don't really have the military hardware either. I mean, if some a prime minister like Rishi Sunak decided to send in the fleet to protect us, I mean, there isn't one really, is there? There isn't. You're absolutely right. There isn't one. And I, I have a place on the Isle of Wight and I'm um, often going across the Solent to that place and seeing our forlorn aircraft carrier, um, <laughs> which is usually alongside because it isn't in a fit state to go anywhere. We have got two, as, as most listeners and viewers will yes. know. And most of the time they aren't doing anything, not only because we don't have the aircraft to go on them, but because these unbelievably anachronistic bits of kit which are great symbols of modern power um but in unfortunately since they were first conceived in the 90s uh, have become much more vulnerable to mm. so many uh, modern bits of, of military hardware uh, they're not they don't have the the kind of protective ring around them that they need to actually go anywhere remotely dangerous because mm. they, they can't set sail on their own you know they need a whole kind of uh, a, a bunch of other ships yeah. around 
put it crudely. Uh, and most of the time, we just don't have that. Yeah, I know. It's quite shocking. Um, but it's a fascinating story. And I'm glad that we were able to sort of explore exactly what it means. And, and thank you for that. Um, stay with us, though, because we want to talk about Sir Softy, uh, Keir Starmer, the man who basically claimed that, uh, that, that he was tough on crime. But it turns out uh, that he basically is really soft on crime. Daily Mail this morning uh, has uh, got a great story about a foreign rapist who's still living in Britain three years after Keir Starmer stopped him from being deported. We'll come back to Isabel Oakeshott and more from uh, from lots of other parts of the news this morning right here on Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Alex Salmon coming up very shortly. He's going to tell us what the latest news is from north of the border uh, up in Scotland, where the police are uh, probably incapable of arresting any uh, actual burglars or uh, proper criminals uh, on the grounds that they're all investigating the SNP's finances, which is becoming a more and more bizarre story with every single uh, day that passes. Uh, but let's have a look at what happened yesterday in the House of Commons before we talk to Isabel Oakeshott some more about Sir Softy as he was named uh, in the uh, Prime Minister's questions yesterday. Here we go. Since since 2010, crime down by 50% under the Conservative government, Mr Speaker. 20,000 more police officers, we've given them more powers and we've toughened up sentencing, all opposed by Sir Softy over there. Uh, Sir Softy over there. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's a bit difficult, isn't it, Isabel, to really work out which one uh, of the Conservatives or Labour Party is softer on crime. I'm not sure we could uh, say that any of them are particularly hard on crime. But the story in the Mail today suggests that a guy called Fabian Henry was due to be deported uh, after some terrible, terrible uh, crimes that he committed. Two vile sex attacks on a girl of 17 and the abduction and the uh, sexual assault of another 15-year-old girl. He was literally taken off a plane about to be deported back to Jamaica, thanks to Sir Keir Starmer. So for Starmer to have this new kind of image that he's trying to put forward as, you know, the strongest man in politics, it's not really wearing, is it? No, it's not. And I think this is a a zero-sum game for both sides, really, because Mm. the whole Sosofty thing, I mean, we we can believe it. And Starmer's critics will be able to wheel out, you know, one case a day for the next month, which they managed to uncover that he had some role in direct or tangential um, in order to prove that he's soft on crime. You know, they can keep this up. Anyone who wants to discredit Starmer's record will be able to keep this up for a very long period. There will have been thousands of cases that he was involved in in some direct or indirect way. Um, But at the same time, for Rishi Sunak to stand up in the Commons and talk about crime being down by 50%, well... You know, what type of crime is down by 50 percent? How credible are those records? Is it because many crimes are not even being bothered being recorded or people have given up actually reporting half of this stuff because the police are uh, too thinly stretched or otherwise occupied to bother attending? You know, people in the end will vote on what they feel and see around them, um, not on Keir Starmer's history. Uh, and what they see around them and feel is that the streets are no more safe. In fact, they're probably considerably more dangerous in certain parts of the UK. You've got kids being shot at, uh, probably far more gun crime. I don't have the stats to hand, but violent mm. crime. Uh, I would like to know what, what picture that is. Uh, I don't think that that voters feel that either side is particularly reassuring on this front. 
No, they really aren't. I mean, there's a knife crime epidemic going on in our cities. We had the dreadful story just the other day uh, of a young boy up in uh, the northeast of England, up in Gateshead, um, sent down for murder. He committed the murder when he was 14 with a knife, uh, stabbing to death a 15-year-old. And that is, is the reality of life at the moment. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm very worried about the, the kind of random gun crimes. We've had some dreadful cases in recent months of people simply being in the wrong place at mm. the wrong time or cases of mistaken identity, including a little girl. You know, this is appalling. This is under the Conservatives. There are also umpteen cases of people who've done dreadful things being let out after a couple of years mm. at best. Uh, and I just don't think that the Conservatives can credibly claim to be tough on crime, still less tough on the causes of crime. Um, so if I were the Conservatives, I'd probably get off this subject pretty fast. Yes. Try to focus on something there is something good to say about. Granted that that is going to be a hard thing to find. Right. Well, I mean, the irony of this Fabian Henry case is that when he was sentenced for these crimes, he was supposed to have been sentenced until 2025. Um, so he should have still been in jail. But of course, he got let out um, and then he was deported back in 2020. Uh, but he's still living in this country, presumably roaming the streets, perfectly free to do so. Um, and nobody's very sure what he's up to. Well, um, what the government will at least be able to argue is that as of today, there have been concessions and changes in the law proposed, which will make it a lot easier to deport foreign criminals. Uh, in particular, um, they've been looking at, at how to stop the European uh, judges intervening with so-called pyjama rulings very late at night, yes. stopping. Uh, people being sent off to Rwanda or back to their own countries on the basis of human rights. Now, what worries me um, about this uh, is that even under um, the new legislation that the, the Tories are boasting about today, there is still a caveat. Um, I've been looking at the detail that if um, the person who's due to be deported faces a, quote, real risk of serious and irreversible harm in the territory to which they are due to be reported, uh, deported, uh, they can still uh, stop, be stopped from going. Yeah. In other words, there's still a legal um, avenue uh, for their team to go down. Uh, my fear is that unless that wording is tightened up, unless the actual legalese is, is more detailed than that, mm. um, that serious risk um, will be continually applied and hyped up and we'll still have a problem. Well, this is the thing. I mean, this is enabling us, of course, to continue with the mad policy, such as the one in Leicester, where the Albanian car wash owner uh, is not able to be deported back to Albania because he fears uh, that his wife's family might kill him, apparently. Uh, and when he was asked, why would they want to do that? He said, well, because I killed her. And you go, well, <laughs> you know, that doesn't really mean you can stay yeah. in this country. It's bonkers. Oh, my goodness. You know, people just people just be astounded that, that this can be allowed to be happening. Um, but at the, at the same time, despairing, because I don't think anyone really believes that a Labour administration would be any better. Well, of course it wouldn't. I mean, that is the horrific um, uh, sort of thing that we're now presented with, is that if there is to be a new government and it isn't going to be a Conservative one and it is going to be Labour, I mean, the, the only enjoyment for me would be purely a journalistic one because it would be great for us here at Talk TV, I'm sure, because uh, every single day we'd have something to have a go at them about. But I'm not looking forward to it as a citizen at all. No, I mean, well, that is a, a very marginal comfort. You know, we journalists all want the bad outcomes, if only to expose them. Um, but I think that voters up and down the country are, 
you know, many of them will be feeling quite disillusioned, um, you know, in the sense that they just don't feel that any of the realistic options to vote for, because we all know in a two-party system, uh, the first pass of post makes it very, very difficult for the smaller parties to get anywhere. Um, people are desperate to punish the Tories, I think, looking around them and feeling that everything has got very, very considerably worse. And yet they know by punishing the Tories, they may be ushering in something that's even worse. Absolutely right. Finally, um, let's talk about the eco-maniacs. They're promising to not necessarily disrupt the London Marathon, but very possibly to join in uh, and somehow help to police it. Um, it's an incredible state of affairs that we now have where these people, these entitled sort of toffee-nosed um, demonstrators, think that they can tell us how we should be living. Here, here's what I think we should do with them on Marathon Day. Every single one of them that turns up to be an absolute pain in the backside should be made to run the entire marathon <laughs> from beginning till end. And then let's see whether they're in any state for the next few days to do anything to piss the rest of us off. Yeah. They're hopefully too tired and, and weary from their runs with too many aching limbs to actually glue themselves to any more roads for a while. Yes, I know. Later on in the show, we're going to be looking at a, a piece of video that they've put out, the guys from the Grand National who are all moaning that they got hurt by the police. I mean, what do they expect? Finally, I'm glad to see the police are actually doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. Well, I think they should be whipped along the marathon route just so they can see, you know, they, they will presumably be delighted to see how it is to be a racehorse. Yes. So, you know, whip them along and see how, how much they suffer, and then we'll take it from there. Look, this has just got absolutely ridiculous. Mm. I think everybody is sick to the back teeth of hearing their apop apocalyptic uh, predictions yeah. of the world being about to end and their ludicrous claims that everything needs to be you know, fired by the sun and powered by the wind. Uh, and they've just completely overplayed their hand. Mm. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Isabel, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakeshott talks to you. He's international editor there uh, with her view of what should happen to the Extinction Rebellion creeps, because that's what they are. If they do turn up to do whatever it is they want to do at the London Marathon, just whip them along, make them run the whole length of the race. Brilliant. Uh, this is Talk TV. Coming up next, Alex Salmond. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And I'm delighted to say that uh, for the next uh, few minutes, maybe more, uh, we have the company of Mr. Alex Salmon. Alex, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, mate. I said welcome to the lair of the Independent Republican Mike Graham. He said, oh, don't worry, I've already sat there. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the angst of the man. Uh, but listen, welcome in. To, to, we've spoken many times in recent weeks. What does angst mean? Angst. <laughs> Well, angst. angst, well, you'll find out what it means when you've been sitting here for five minutes. You'll be feeling lots of it. Um, the SN, I'm just reading a tweet from Megan Gallagher, um, who up until the other day I never even heard of. The SNP is in total meltdown. Yesterday I challenged Humza Yusuf over the chaos engulfing the SNP. He is yet to suspend any SNP member over the current police investigation into his party's finances. That pretty much says it all, really, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not, I, mean I, I love this stuff. You suspend this and suspend the next. And, I mean... You know, one problem obviously is under you know Nicola Sturgeon. Mm. I mean, the SNP used to suspend people with a drop of a hat. Right. You know, I mean, you know, right. there was a famous case of Michelle Thompson, mm. who wasn't actually being investigated. It was a lawyer that was being investigated, and she got encouraged to to resign the whip. But generally speaking, you tend, I would say, you tend not to suspend people until they're charged. Yes, uh, I would say because you know, natural justice. I mean, natural justice is an interesting thing. There's lots yes. of folk, perhaps like Megan Gallagher, who think. 
think that natural justice is something that applies to them, but not mm. to other people. Well, it applies like, to everybody. Well, exactly. I mean, Westminster's had its own problems with this as well, haven't mm. they? Whether they suspend somebody, because if they suspend them, then they automatically identify them as somebody who might be the subject yeah. of an inquiry. But I, thought, bit... I thought, incidentally, Dominic Raab was looking a bit peaky yesterday, yes. sitting next to him. Did you notice that? Well, he, he looked like he was elsewhere. He always looks a bit like that, though, doesn't, doesn't he? he? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I mean, this bullying allegation against him seems to me mm. to be, depending on who you believe, uh, either going to be awful for him or going to be no problem at all. You know, because, or somewhere in between. Or somewhere in between, <laughs> which is probably the truth. But, I mean, we we just have to wait and see. But, I mean, it seems to me it's it's not a definitive report of any kind. So whatever whatever is in it That's will right. not, it, will not necessarily lead to anything. It's quite interesting. I mean, I read that somewhere that was, it's going to be a description mm. <laughs> as opposed to a proscription. Yes. Um, well, also, listening to the guy from the, from the Public Service Union talking about some of the uh, activities mm. that went on under Dominic Raab's watch, I mean, a lot of it doesn't sound terribly serious to me. Like somebody getting a phone call to be asked why he hadn't done something. <laughs> sound like bullying, really, doesn't it? Oh, no, no. In today's civil service. <laughs> I mean, being, how dare you? Being asked to do something. Yes. Come on. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Behave. But, I mean, let's look at what's going on up there. We've got uh, Scottish questions, First Minister's questions at midday, which we might be taking a little peek at later on. Uh, Humza Yusuf, the continuity uh, First Minister, as uh, we're calling uh, him. Uh, uh, he so regrets that. I'm, sure, mean, I'm sure he must go to bed every night and go... God, I wish I hadn't well, said when, that. Well, when Megan Gallagher sort of had a go at him the other day in, in Scottish Parliament, his best answer was that I'd rather be standing here um, in charge than be part of the opposition. And I thought to myself, you probably don't, actually. You'd probably rather be in the opposition at this moment, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, that's not much right. I mean, they, uh, I mean, Hamza must be stealing himself. He'll, mm. be, he'll be sitting up in the First Ministerial office, uh, you know, thinking, and thinking, I wonder what they're going to ask me to do. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, Nicola Sturgeon more than likely isn't going to be there. I'm not sure where she's going to be. Um, but even the SNP, we're told, are now expecting her to be arrested, sort of imminently. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, that, that's based on the theory of uh, signatories to the accounts. Yes. Uh, that, that, you know, Peter Burrell was a signatory that uh, Colin Beattie, the, the treasurer, a thoroughly nice guy, incidentally. Mm. Well, he's, uh, he's, he's stepped back from his role, hasn't he? Yes, he's the only person that has he's suspended himself. Yes. Incidentally, I mean, obviously, I'm sad it's what happened to my party, but the, the, the tears that you see are, are something to do with the with hay fever. And ah, yes. All these I've got buds, a bit of that. buds that are floating around I was London wondering. at the present. I mean, it's really surprising you can get hay fever in London, but you can. Oh, you can, totally. Yeah, yeah the plane trees, actually, are the things that give it to you because it's the pollen that comes off the trees at this time of year. I'll but, watch out for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll wear glasses in the future. Yes, you should. <laughs> I was wondering if you were getting a bit doe-eyed about, you know, the old... Uh, the no, no, I, I thought I should... Ex- I thought, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I've been deliberately trying to get the tears running. No, but... Well, actually, I mean, people ask me, you know, they keep phoning me up from all places. I get dozens of phone calls every day saying you must be jumping for joy mm. and, and, and the reality is no I, you know, I, I did spend you know two decades and more building up the SNP from nothing at yeah. all uh, to being the dominant force in Scottish politics so it, you know there's a kind of a big emotion mm. that you don't like seeing the disintegration no, of something of not. that took a long time to, to build up. And it has been incredibly fast I mean I was just talking to somebody last night um, just before I was on Jerry Carl's show about the, the speed of the kind of demise of, of just Nicola Sturgeon herself, even if nothing else happens to her, you know, from only a few weeks ago saying there's plenty left in the tank, Jacinda Ardern might have gone, but I'm still here, you know. And then suddenly, that was the end. Well, of course, you know, it's part of the, you know, the power. Mm. You know, the power tends to drain from people 
very quickly. Yeah. And people anticipate the draining of power. And all the kind of yes people, the yes men and women who are prepared to you know, look aside and, mm. and, and look elsewhere, uh, you know, all of a sudden discover their consciences yeah. again. I mean, I was interested in the, the new deputy leader yesterday sort of saying, well, actually, maybe things weren't really as good as they yes. should have been uh, with Nicola and Charles. Now, she, she wouldn't have said that a month ago. On the no. contrary, she would have said Nicola was the best thing since sliced bread. Mm. You know, something that hasn't been really reported in this, which I feel very angry about, the worst, one of the worst aspects of what we know about this is that there's at least a dozen people, maybe more actually, but certainly a dozen that I could name, people who ask questions about the finances. Maybe mm. did know more and said, look, something's not quite right, right here. And these people had their careers, they were sacked, sidelined, mm. sent, to, sent to Siberia. Yeah. I mean, they, they, were, they had their careers diminished because they had the temerity eh, to do their job. Yes. Even, even up to, you might argue, the, the deputy leader, Keith Brown, who was actually elected, the Keith Brown, a chap called Keith Brown, he, he was elected by the party. And, he, he, you know, he's, I think I'm right, been sacked from the cabinet twice. Mm. You know, he's a deputy leader. Right. But other people, much more savagely, you know, sort of kept off the uh, the candidates list. Uh, Joanna Cherry, you, yeah. know, the, you know, who, you know, <laughs> whatever you might think of the result, you know, defeated the prime minister yes. in the English high court. Yes. Uh, and finds herself... a significant figure. Yes, finds herself swept away right. as the justice spokesman for, you know, somebody who <laughs> probably... Mm. It would have difficulty explaining the the division of powers yes. in the English courts. Certainly, has no great expertise in the justice system. So people and and they try to stop them becoming candidates. Mm. And, and you trace it back, and you find the common thread is these are all people who said something about finance. And wait a minute, things mm. aren't as they should be. Yes. And it's absolutely disgraceful. These people have been victimised mm. in the way they've been. And there's hardly any publicity. I mean, there's lots of publicity about the people who looked the other way. But there's not so much publicity about the people who didn't and yes. suffered as a And result. then suffered. Because what ended up happening with Nicola Sturgeon's kind of uh, party, <clears throat> as it was, as it was, because it was her party, became her party. You know, when mm. you were leader, you know, you had Nicola Sturgeon, who was able to become your successor mm. when, when, when that point came. That as seemed it, like a good it, idea at as, the time. Well, it did, yes. I mean, you could be blamed for all of that, Yes, by well, the way. yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I go to bed at night wondering about that. It's yeah, like absolutely. Kevin O'Sullivan says, I was the guy that gave Piers Morgan a job at the Sun. And oh, that, oh, no, so it's all on. his fault. No, wait a minute, that's much worse. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, so the thing is, right, that you had a sort of a line of succession available to, mm. to the party, which was great. However, for her, it became a cult of personality. And it, to be part of that cult, not only did you have to be in uh, absolute adoration of the leader, but you also had to go along with all the wokery. And the wokery, which inevitably killed the party off, well, because it was, the, it was the end of, of her that came at that moment when she tried to explain why... A, a trans woman couldn't go to a, um, a female prison. Well, I mean, there's a bit worse than that. I mean, being Nicola's heir apparent at any point in time was a very dangerous thing to yes. be. If you, if, you, if you chart the history of the mm. last few years, I mean, you know, things seem to befall, uh, you know, the, the next leader but one uh, when Nicola was in charge. But yes, it was dramatic, as we've discussed many times. Mm. I mean, Nicola, a, a master of communications, uh, and yet suddenly struck dumb effectively when asked you know the, the simplest of questions mm. which is not the only politician who can't answer that question no. instantly but nonetheless it was it, it was a you know the, the queen has no clothes on sort of moment wasn't yes it? and you could almost see in her eyes that as she was failing to answer it mm. that she knew that that was the moment uh, and i said i think the first time i saw it you should have had a big explosion enough behind her because yeah. that was the end of her career mm. but i mean what do you think drove her to become 
that woke individual? Why did she go down that road? I honestly have no idea. I mean, I knew Nicola for a long time. Yeah. I thought I did at least, uh, but I, there was no, not even uh, an inkling that she'd be an enthusiast for 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 woke ideology. Mm. Never mind identity yeah. in politics. Nothing whatsoever. Maybe I, you know, maybe I was too busy speaking about independence for Scotland. I don't right. know. Maybe I just didn't see it. But no, I don't think so. This is something which is much much more recent. I mean, there is a theory, of course, that, that, that Nicola had been First Minister for a long time, mm. but, but didn't have a great legislative, legislative achievement. Yes. Uh, you know, I introduced... No legacy. Yeah, I introduced equal marriage. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was a really important thing to do. It was yeah. very controversial at the time, much less so now. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't have regarded that as my greatest achievement. I mean, that mm. was something I did because I thought it was the right thing to do. Right. Uh, you know, my, uh, I thought the progress towards independence was, was my greatest yes. uh, achievement. So, but, but you know, maybe she felt that she needed some sort of legislation which would be her, her legacy. They all do, don't they, some of these? I mean, you know, politicians, I say I talk about them as if you're not one, but you are, obviously. <laughs> well, not but, really, you know, yeah, Tony not. Blair... You know, kind of uh, fell and, uh, on the altar of the Iraq War because he thought that he would be standing shoulder to shoulder with George Bush and that that would be his legacy of freeing yeah, up well. the Middle East. When in fact, all he did was set fire to it. Well, it's very difficult if you see that famous picture of uh, you know him imitating Bush's behaviour. Yes, with the fingers on the gun belt. Yeah. You know, if you remember at the yeah. ranch. Yes, uh, and you know, at the very least, uh, Blair thought, you know, I'm really the vice president. Yes, even if I can't be president because of the unfortunate uh, point, I wasn't like unlike Boris Johnson, right. born in America. Uh, at least I can be the effective mm. international vice president of the United States. I mean, yes, uh, there was a, an element of that. Or, or alternatively, of course, people might just go mad in office. Yes. I mean, you know, look, I was the only one that was still sane after... Uh... Well, it's true. I mean, if you get... Um, if you, if you, if you sort of voluntarily step down, you remain sane. It's, simply, it's the same in, in uh, newspapers, you know. The, the only inevitability is you will get fired at the end. You know, they w it will always be unpleasant at the end. And mm. every Downing Street sort of scene is somebody being... Being dragged out, kicking and screaming. Gordon Brown was not. Well, that's right. Well, well, he, well, he didn't. <clears throat> usually, they say it's ten years. I mean, so, I mean the Margaret Thatcher, you know, line was. Uh, you know, when Margaret Thatcher started to think the poll tax was a great idea, you know, right. that's that's when you thought, wait a minute. Yes. Uh, the uh, but that was she managed to you know she managed to retain sanity for a long time. She did, mm -hmm. but she didn't want to go even when she did go. No, no, she was she was clear that it wasn't it wasn't yeah. hay fever on her part. No, it was in the back of the car. And of course, the other funny thing about Blair was that you know he. He crossed that Rubicon where he gets to the point where you say, where you hear politicians say, or prime ministers say, well, sometimes some of the decisions we have to make are unpopular. And that's when you know that they've kind of jumped the shark. Yeah, but I mean, there's, I mean, it's easy in retrospect, mate, because you can look back and say, oh, oh look at that. Mm. But there was a speech, I think the 2001 Labour conference. I remember Clinton was out of office and there, mm. and Blair was making a speech about how, you know, can this neoliberal stuff, we, could, we can... You know, invade Africa and, and introduce democracy. We've got the power to do this. We can introduce uh, democratic liberalism to every country on earth. We just need enough armies, yeah. preferably American, to do it. And I actually remember it because Clinton was on the stage. And Clinton, what, you know, you know what, yeah. even, even Bill Clinton didn't think this was a great right, idea. Right, exactly. Let, let's get back to what's going on uh, in Scotland, though. I mean, as far as what is happening Inside the SNP, I mean, we keep reading reports that, you know, there, there are now factions sort of splitting all over the place. There is a fear that they've got so little money now because all their donations have dried up wow. that as a political entity, they may be no more. 
Well, I mean, there's certainly difficulties. I mean, you wouldn't want to be a, an SNP fundraiser at the at the present moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, quite apart from the fact that the cops might come round, uh, but you wouldn't want to be a new SNP mm. fundraiser at the present moment because it would be a challenge. Uh, I mean, the SNP is still a powerful organisation. I mean. I, I don't think for a second, incidentally, that even 72,000 was mm. its real membership in no. terms of people it had paid. But nonetheless, it's, it's a much bigger party than all of the other parties in Scotland put together. So don't, you know, don't, uh, I wouldn't write off the SNP. Nonetheless, there is an enormous challenge. You know, uh, uh, the, the brand has been severely damaged. And those of us, you know, who obviously care about the SNP, as I still do, but but care about independence more. Mm. I've really got to concentrate on how to make sure that the independence cause isn't damaged by the SNP brand. Mm. And, and, and now I'm doing a, a speech in our bro, if I can just do a quick advert. Yeah, do. Uh, with uh, an old comrade of mine, uh, Jim Sullers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we haven't actually spoken on a platform since the referendum together. We haven't always seen eye to eye, mm. but we're speaking tonight in our bro. Uh, and, uh, and we'll have something to say about uh, how we can make the independence movement uh, not not be undermined by mm. the by the trials and tribulations yes. of the of the SNP because remember I've... what's happening this now I mean the SNP support is slipping in most polls as you would expect but independence support's strong mm. i mean it's 47% so people are looking for somewhere else to go then with mm -hmm. independence because some of the use of up to now as far as i can see and i haven't <laughs> i haven't read every kevin mckenna column there is uh, to read but it's quite a few and stuff that, kevin has a number of outlets yes he does indeed like yourself indeed and um but use of as, as far as i can see hasn't said much about independence but he has said that he's going to challenge the uh, uh, the british government in the courts over uh, this ridiculous gender recognition act well look there i mean this is I mean, the, the, both both sides of that are, are, are mad, incidentally. I mean, if you look at his, I mean, to be fair to him, I mean, obviously his announcement of his legislative programme, his ideas was kind of overshadowed mm. by the uh, the arrest of the party treasurer the, that day. Well, well, it would be, wouldn't it? Well, it would. But, <laughs> but so, you know, it wasn't, you might say it wasn't an entirely fair chance. But nonetheless, his speech seemed to be the pre-prepared speech. Mm. And, and there was very little, next to nothing, about independence. Mm. When somebody did one of these word searches and yes. didn't appear at all uh, but you know he's decided to to challenge the UK government and the courts on, on, on self-identification now the, the problem with the the challenge of self-identification is not the challenge to the UK government you know if I was first minister just now I'd be challenging it all over the place mm. Uh, but yeah, but you were very good at it because you always challenged things that you knew they could never give you, and that way it made it look as if you were the man who was being shortchanged. <coughs> Did you see through that? I'm afraid so. Oh, I've always said that you were very good at that. And also, I tried to make sure that the, the people were with me. Yeah, they always were. <laughs> you know, they, but something that the no, because you'd always whipped them up into the idea that we want this, well, we're no, going to get it, we're going to go and get it, and then they said, no, you can't have it. Sometimes they whip me up, Mike. It's you know, true. <laughs> something. I mean, there's plenty of stuff. You're not short of challenges at the present right. moment. I mean, you know, I know it's me, but. You know, people are still shivering in, yes. in Scotland at the present moment. Well, he's also on nights. And, you know, this energy, most energy-rich country in Europe, bar Norway, wow. and folk are shivering in their homes. Let's have a challenge on that. Well, exactly you right. Know, Hamza Yusuf, apparently, by the way, is listed as an international guest for the coronation. So, I mean, that, that's something you could also challenge. But, but actually, it's interesting you speak about energy, because this morning, the Telegraph story I well, wanted to ask you about. That's an achievement. That's yeah. A... Um, the, the, the Russian spy ship story. Uh, you know a bit about the North Sea uh -huh. and, and the fishing business up there. But, I mean, if, for example, Scotland was an independent country and something like this was happening, uh -huh. how would that play out? I mean, you wouldn't, I mean, Britain doesn't even got a navy, never mind Scotland. 
Well, if, if you don't if you don't have a navy, you don't have a navy. I mean, right. look, I, I'll tell you what what's dangerous about. I mean, obviously there's a war in Europe, mm. and that's dangerous. The, the Nordstrom pipeline yeah. and the and the circumstances under which it was blown up yeah. uh, are very are, mysterious. Are, are very mysterious and very dangerous. I mean, you know, up until now. Uh, the idea of of interfering with another country's infrastructure is something you didn't do because mm. they'd do it back to you, right. uh, and therefore you know that they, you know people didn't really pay much attention to what happened to that gas pipeline, but they should have done. Yes, because it's you know if once you start saying that's fair game, mm. then everybody gets very very vulnerable indeed. And incidentally, boats sailing round. The North Sea ain't going to protect your pipeline network. No. It's a big sea right. and there's small boats. And also, when you see Russian um, um, sort of gun wielding um, military types standing on these ships, which <coughs> are meant to be mapping ships, you kind of go, that's not a great well, thing to see. You don't think they're fishing then? Uh, well, I mean, but the fishing business <laughs> or as well. Or not for fish. Yes, but the fishing business as well in Scotland is. is um, uh, is it a bit of a bad place, isn't it? Well, yeah. Well, we, we should. I mean, it's interesting. You see, the, the fishing. You know, I, I represented a fishing constituency mm. for twenty-five years, so it's dear to my heart. But to, to run a successful fishing industry, you need two things: you need control of the resource, and you need access to markets. Mm. Now, for many years in the European Union, we didn't have control of the resource. Mm. We had access to markets, but not control right. of the resource. Now, after Brexit, we've got control of the resource potentially. Mm but no access to the markets. Right. Uh, and for a, a great fishing industry, you can both control the resource uh, and access, to, perhaps like the Norwegians. Yes, and why not indeed? Well, listen, Alex, it's great to see you in person. Thank you for coming you in. You never asked me about the Manchester clubs. Well, I can if you want. Well, I, two things. He keeps well, telling me we've got to go, but you carry on. Oh, no, what, what, some guy in the Guardian might suggest. I know. <laughs> you know, never mind the history. Mm. The, the, both these clubs were formed after yes. slavery uh, and the fact that the Manchester Ship Canal wasn't built until about 1890 or something. Right. But, the, you know, the, the, the people who don't understand, I mean, look, there's a guy called Andrew Watson, mm. which I've got to get this in. Yeah. Right, a, a man of mixed race, captain of Scotland, right. who took his team as captain to the Oval where they used to play football mm. and hammered England 6-1 right. as captain of Scotland. Yes. You know, a mixed race player in the 19th century... Don't assume that some of the prejudices that have, have soiled the, the recent understandings uh, were always mm. part of, of history. Some of them were, but you know you can't you can't say, look, we're going to make two clubs formed after slavery was abolished yes. <laughs> and start to mind you. I, I don't really think it's anything more than a Guardian story. I don't think it is. And they a Guardian see the, story they see these the days doesn't necessarily amount no, to very they much. They see a ship. They see stories about <clears> cotton mills, and they see Manchester, and they go, oh. Must be slavery. And of course, one of the interesting things about the American Civil War, which you know, I spent a wee bit of time studying once upon a time, is that the number of people in Manchester and elsewhere, I mean, there's a statue to Abraham Lincoln in Carlton Cemetery yeah. in, uh, in, in Edinburgh, who against their own economic interests, against their own economic interests, workers, yeah. campaigned against slavery. Yeah. Of course. I mean, the truth <coughs> escapes most of these people. It's quite infuriating at times. But anyway, listen, have a good time in our broth. No, good to see you. Um, there's, there's something else big happened in our broth, isn't it? No, quite <laughs> well, some time ago. I, may, I may mention that. Yeah, well, you may well do. Uh, Alex Salmond, uh, he is, of course, the head of the Alba Party. We'll see uh, what happens. It's, it's only Thursday. Uh, anything could happen to the SNP. There could be some more arrests. You never know. We'll keep you updated. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is Thursday, of course, so that can only mean one thing. It will be time later on uh, for the Thursday Club with Helena Nicklin. She'll be coming along uh, to tell us what delights she has for us. I think they may be in the Malbec area. We've been talking about a great many things, including, of course, the front page of The Telegraph today. Russian spy ships threatening to sabotage UK energy supply. Uh, also, we'll be talking about The Times front page, where it says judges are going to lose power to block migrant flights, which is good news for everybody uh, who thinks that this source situation situation with the boats and the illegal migrants needs to be sorted out. We'll also be talking to Frank Ferreira coming up in this hour about the fact that um, slavery sort of, you know, retribution has now become so ridiculous that some maniac has written in The Guardian uh, about how Manchester United and Manchester City's uh, football club crests are somehow reminiscent uh, of connections to slavery, even though, as Alex Salmon just said, uh, the clubs were formed after slavery was abolished. So that's all very good indeed, isn't it? We'll also be talking to Annabelle Denham in this hour uh, and Nigel West, the military historian and author, uh, about two things. One, the ridiculous greedflation, which seems to be engulfing our supermarkets and our uh, food shopping bills. And also, uh, with Nigel West, of course, the Russian ghost ships. But let's say a very good morning to Professor Frank Faraday, author and sociologist. Frank, how are you doing? Not bad yourself? Very well indeed, very well indeed. Now, I know being a Tottenham fan, you probably don't want to talk that much about football um, because, you know, at least you're not a Chelsea fan. It could be worse, right? But um, I don't know if you've seen the, the front page of The Sun this morning, but, you know, the, the ship hits the fan uh, is quite a good headline. Unbelievable stuff, this. You know, you've now got some bloke writing in The Guardian because he's seen something that he doesn't understand and has decided it must have a link to slavery. I mean, this is now peak wokery, isn't it? Well, you know, uh, some people might uh, have a, a light-hearted response and say this is just a joke. These are, are just a bunch of fools who are trying to find something to complain about. But actually, this is part of a, a very determined and very insidious project of essentially calling into question the legitimacy of symbols and statues and the rituals that are part and parcel of people's heritage and basically if they remove those ships from the uh, from the Manchester cities and Manchester United uh, shirts what they earlier have said is that the history of Manchester is a history of shame mm. and that people that live in that city should be ashamed of where they come from that Manchester is entirely built on slavery yeah uh, the history has got no redeeming features and in a sense, what it does is it kind of renders toxic, totally toxic, the past and basically suggests that people in Manchester should literally detach themselves from it and give in to these uh, campaigners, these crusaders mm. who are trying to guilt trip people. It really is extraordinary, isn't it? Because there is now this, I mean, the idea that the royal family are looking into it, the fact that, uh, you know, in some parts of America, the reparations business is a big business. Uh, we had that woman Trevelyan, didn't we, going over to uh, the Caribbean and handing out her family's money because she was ashamed of what they'd done. I mean, it's a, such a kind of a middle class sort of ac academia driven load of old nonsense. But it is, as you say, insidious. It is because if they are going to uh, win and prevail, then basically what they will tell people is that where you come from is just inherently contaminated by all these bad things that your ancestors did. And the trouble is, is that and the way that history is being rewritten, you can literally say anything mm. and, and get away with it. So we have a situation where you see a ship. Now, most normal human beings when they see a ship, they think of the ocean, they think of traveling. Yeah. Uh, 
slavery does not come to mind. And to make that connection, coupling uh, those uh, those ships on the emblems with slavery, normally would, would, would require a fantastic leap in imagination. But today, people can make these grotesque claims and get away with it because there's already uh, a fertile terrain for feeling uh, insecure and defensive about Britain's past. Yeah. And the ship, as, as you've quite rightly said, is, is, is synonymous with Manchester. And Manchester's sort of city, the city of Manchester's own kind of crest has a ship in it because the Manchester Ship Canal, even though that's not the kind of ship that was on it, is synonymous with Manchester as well. You know, it's mad. And also, as you've just been pointing out to me, you know, there's a devil on the Manchester United crest as well, but they're OK with that. Well, not for long, because it, <laughs> it's possible... It's possible that the devil or, or the devil's wife has some shares in some plantation in, in <laughs> another part of the world. And maybe the devil was directly involved or indirectly involved in, in slavery as well. So you, you can make up the most fantastic. Yeah. But this is it. You know, Satanism's fine unless there was a connection <laughs> to slavery. You know, yeah. then then it's absolutely untenable. Can't be done. But it is yeah. remarkable, isn't it? But still, we, we go on. But we, we now live in this ludicrous world um, where everything that some people don't like is bad. So, for example, we've got um, the latest um, uh, eco-nutters out there saying they might be going to demonstrate the London Marathon or they might not. We've got the guy jumping on the snooker table who's decided on moral grounds not to have any children, uh, which is quite good news for the rest of us, I suppose. Um, but it's all about them telling us how we should be living and how evil we all are. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when uh, people like you and me would would have some bad habits or some good habits. We'd have some strong views of what, what is right and what is wrong in terms of our lives. But we didn't really need to go out and force other people to eat the way we do, to force other people mm. to think the way we do, because we had this basic commonsensical approach of live and let live. Whereas now what happens is that unless you accept your uh, somebody else's version of events and subscribe to their theory about the problems of the world, you're inherently evil and therefore you're a legitimate target for protest and demonstration. Yes. It really is extraordinary, isn't it? And I mean, as far as the London Marathon goes, um, you would think that would be something that actually uh, they would not interfere with because most of the people running in it are raising money for charity, which is good, generally speaking. Um, and it's also non, you know, uh, environmentally damaging. But I'm according not sure about that. I'm not <coughs> sure about that. I mean... These runners are breathing very, very hard, and, and the harder your heart beats, and the more breath that passes through your body, the more carbon you emit, and that, that may well be a problem for our net zero uh, sort of objectives. It may well be. I've got a, a note here from Jake. He says, Extinction Rebellion have confirmed that they are hiring around 200 diesel-powered coaches to bring in protesters from as far away as Glasgow to London and back to protest against people using diesel. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that... You know, that makes sense when you think about it. From their perspective, their logic, well, why not? But I was talking yesterday about having to find another way of sort of punishing them because they clearly don't mind going to prison, some of them. Uh, the guy that was in Sheffield jumping on the snooker table has been in prison loads of times, doesn't care. They get crowdfunded. Uh, he actually gets paid for demonstrating. Other people are funded, like the Extinction Rebellion, by very wealthy individuals and, and, and corporations in some ways. Um, you've also got Dale Vince, the ecotricity guy. He's funding Just Stop Oil. You know, they've got plenty of money. So, you know, kind of arresting them and locking them up clearly is not a big enough deterrent. We'd have to find another way, don't we? I, I think we do. I think we have to um, 
call into question their, their bluffing, uh, call into question their narrative, and basically demonstrate the fact that at the end of the day, they're just a bunch of intolerant, uh, sort of uh, silly young kids who mm. are basically uh, having got a, a proper case. And it seems to me that you know, we need to also react much more aggressively. So you know, if you're going to stop people from playing pool, or billiards, or going to stop people from running in a marathon, I do think the crowd has got to make their views uh, sort of felt very, very clearly that you're not really interfering with our life, and we're not letting you anywhere near where we are. And some, at some point, this is going to come to some you know, real polarized uh, sort of infighting between the two sides. Mm. And, and I, just, I just get embarrassed by the fact that people who are sensible uh, are often too embarrassed to react and, and yell and shout and make it very, very clear that you are disrupt not only just disrupting our life, you are trying to disorient us from getting on with the you know with the way that we live. Yeah. And that's not fair to you know, that that's really is very, very unfair. Well several people have suggested to me that if you just allowed the general public to deal with these idiots, um, they wouldn't be doing it more than once because they would uh, realise it was a bit of a mistake. And it, it almost went that way up in uh, in Liverpool with the Grand National. But let's talk a bit about the migrants because the latest um, news this morning uh, from the Home Office is that judges will now no longer have the power to block migrant flights. But I seem to remember the last time there was an attempt to fly to Rwanda, um, albeit with only one person on it. Um, the initial judges actually didn't try and block the flight anyway. Yeah, I, th- I think this is a, a difficult question because um, there is a, a misuse of the law, the politicization of the courts, in order to thwart uh, sort of governments and policymakers from dealing with the, with the migration question. Because it, at the moment, anytime anybody wants to do anything effective or decisive, there's always this uh, assumption that the court will intervene and prevent that from occurring. So uh, there is, this is a problem. But of course, uh, I'm not really sure to what extent there is the will on the part of the government to actually take on the judiciary and, and whether or not there's the will on the part of government to basically take on those sections of the media that are in, inciting uh, opposition to their attempt to send people to Rwanda or to deal with the boats. Because at the end of the day, you, you do need to be fairly focused, fairly brave to deal with this question because there's such pressure on you to give in, roll over, and pretend that the problem doesn't really exist. Mm. Well, I mean, I did that for so many years and they suddenly realised that it didn't go away. So now they're having to confront it. And I think because it's such a big issue, that's why it's going to be so important, I think, that uh, if Keir Starmer doesn't come out and have some kind of policy on it, I don't think he wins the next election. I think it's becoming a huge issue because uh, people can see in front of their eyes that uh, we, we now live in a world where Britain's borders uh, don't really have very much of a real existence, that people can very casually just walk in yeah. and, and know that there's going to be no real comeback on that. And for a lot of people, uh, this sends out a message which basically says that they are not really in control of their own lives, that right. the government is not in control of their security. And that is a, a massive, massive challenge, because unless the, the government takes the nation's security more seriously, uh, people are going to look for other political parties. Yeah, well, and, they uh, really are. Well, I must admit, I had a slightly wry smile on my face, albeit that the queue wasn't very bad and it happened. It moved quite quickly. But leaving France um, to get on the shuttle last uh, end of last weekend, um, 
the fact that they stamp your passport as you leave France. I was just thinking to myself, well, if they can do that here, why can't they set up a little passport booth on the beach before these characters get into the dinghy and at least ensure that they have a passport before they get on? I think that's probably true. And I think the other day when all those poor people were queuing up to, to take the ferry from Dover, yeah. if they had been illegal immigrants going on a little boat, they probably would have got on the other side a little bit faster. They would have done. And if they had waited their turn, yeah. Yeah, absolutely incredible stuff. Frank, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Frank Ferrady, professor, author and sociologist, of course, as well, uh, talking perfect sense about the wokists and the madness of it all. How ridiculous can it be that somebody writes a piece in The Guardian about two football clubs in Manchester who were, for- <clears throat> excuse me, who were formed after slavery was abolished and suddenly claim that they've got links to slavery? It's ridiculous, isn't it? We're going to talk some more about the people that disrupted the Grand National coming next. And Annabelle Denham's here to talk about why everything costs so much. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Mark says this, I live in uh, Alderby in Norfolk, and our village sign is a Viking longship as it was a Viking settlement. Are we to remove that as the Vikings took slaves as well as raping and pillaging? Well, who knows? Uh, Manchester United and Manchester City should not change their badges. Let bygones be bygones. There are no bygones. That's the point. I can't see that. such a long email uh, that I can't actually see precisely uh, what it is. But uh, we can't give you a name. But it's not a question of let bygones be bygones. It's a question of actually saying uh, there is no connection to slavery, for heaven's sake. Now, before we do anything else, Earl's in Bolton. But before that, uh, don't forget, Wednesday, we've got a brand new Plank of the Week. And it's in a brand new studio. Have a look at this. I'm Mike Graham and this is Talk TV. You know what we're going to do now, don't you? It's Plank of the Week time. We do it every Friday night. It goes out at 7pm and you don't want to miss it. Do you know why? Because it includes all of the people that you love to hate. It might even include some of the people that you love to love. It might be Harry and Meghan. It might be Sadiq Khan. It could be a football team. It could be the Prime Minister. It could be the Leader of the Opposition. It might even be someone up in Scotland. You never know. Watch us every Friday, 7pm. Every Friday, 7pm. Don't miss it. Now, uh, let's talk to Nigel. Uh, sorry, Nigel's not ready. Uh, Earl's in Bolton. Hello, Earl. Good morning, Mike. Morning, sir. What can I do for you? I'm uh, just <laughs> interested in this latest madness about uh, Man United and yes. City having to, you know, absolutely insane. It's just another part of the communist woke plot to undermine our country, I think. And I cause think it riots. is. Well, I mean, the, the whole story it. seems to be a bit of a red herring uh, cooked up by some maniac from The Guardian. Oh, well, that's about... Is that the Manchester Guardian that was? It, well, it used to be the Manchester Guardian. This is the same ah, Guardian, well. by the way, that has even done an investigation into its own links to slavery. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I love about this, the young lady was on before, yes. uh, earlier on, uh, obviously a very talented and clever girl. Um, but I, I was under impression she might have been mixed race. No, I'm very bad with my eyesight. Yeah. Uh, which is fine if she was. But, you see, I'd love to know. They're blaming Manchester and possibly Liverpool for these, this part of the slave trade. Right. But anybody wants reparation, right. they'll have to find out where their ancestors came from in Africa. Uh, was it Manchester or Liverpool or Southampton that deported them mm. or took them all? Tra- yeah. Oh, we've lost you, I think. Yeah, we just lost it all. I get his point, though. I mean, it is, it is ludicrous. But the point is, is as it was uh, pointed out by Alex Salmon, um, the leader of the Alba Party, the former First Minister of Scotland, former MP, um, former MSP, you know, slavery was abolished before Manchester United and Manchester City were actually dreamed up. 
So you really don't need to worry about any connections with slavery because there simply aren't any. But of course, the people that run The Guardian want to tell everybody that everything is linked to slavery. Because, of course, we all came from somewhere that had done something wrong in the past. I mean, it's nonsense. Absolute nuts of rubbish. I haven't really spoken much about, you know, King Charles and his plan to sort of go back into uh, the land of the slaves and exactly what the royal family connections to it all were. But I think that's an absolutely ridiculous idea. Bad idea. Very wrong Uh, Because where on earth does it take you, apart from somewhere bad? Uh, Muttley says, Mike, please play that clip from the woke grand national demonstrators on the hour, every hour. It brightened my day. Bloody snowflakes. Well, exactly right. And good one here uh, as well. Says, Mike, let's hope the Met imports a few coppers from Merseyside to show how to treat those nutters this weekend. Not the weak, need, lily-livered way of the past. Tell them to imagine they're football supporters says Terry and Burby. Well, funnily enough, somebody was telling me who was up at the Grand National that actually there was cheers that rang around the race course for the police because of the way that they dealt uh, with these absolute morons uh, and absolutely got them out of the way because they could have caused even more death and mayhem than they actually did. Richard's in Wakefield. Hi, Richard. Hi, Mike. How are you doing, sir? Not so bad. Another irate Mancunian. (laughs) Well, listen, you should be irate because you've been accused of, of having two football teams with links to slavery. Yeah, not to do with a football team, just a bit, a bit of history, really. Mm. I mean, um, if uh, you've worked in America, if you tend to pop down to Savannah and Charleston, mm. you'll find out where the plantations were. And it wasn't the British who were picking the cotton. It was somebody else. Yes. And somebody else was making the money. Mm. Secondly, uh, I've got a long history in cotton and all the rest of it. Um, If you look at pictures of cotton mills in Manchester, Mm. you will see hundreds of Lancashire lassies. Right. You will not see uh, many ethnic faces at all. No. The money, the people who were making the money were the people who actually owned the slaves in uh, Savannah and Charleston. Right. And we actually got thrown out of a plantation in Manchester on a visit there when we suggested they were slaves. Really? And the Americans said, no, they're not. They were workers. Oh, yeah. But I suppose you might argue, if you were, if you could be bothered, that the people who owned the mills and who made the money from the cotton that was being, um, you know, uh, made by the by the Lancashire lasses, as you say, you know, you could say that they might have been profiting from it. But, you know, so what is what I would say. You know, lots of people profited from things in the past that you might not do now, but you can't just keep saying how terrible it all was and now somebody owed somebody some money. Well, the modern-day equivalent would be to blame everybody in China who makes every piece of rubbish we buy over here. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, there are some people who say it's our fault that they make everything in China and that their emissions are actually our emissions because we buy the stuff that they make. It's mad. I think we need to stop self-flagellating. I couldn't agree more. What a very good way to end that call, Richard. Thank you very much. Time to stop self-flagellating. Very good. Let's talk to Nigel West, military historian and author, because we want to find out what he knows uh, about these ghost ships which are currently sailing around in the North Sea uh, with armed R- Russian mil- militia on them. Nigel, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for, for talking to us. I mean... People have have reacted to this in a variety of ways. Many of them have said, well, why would you be surprised that the Russians are doing this? Um, I suppose the main question would be, is this something out of the ordinary? Are these ghost ships something new? Uh, Have they always done it for various reasons? They have always done it, but the deployment on this occasion is much more concentrated. And I think we're more conscious of the new targets that they're surveying Mm. That's all to do with energy security. So what the Russians appear to be doing is 
is mapping and doing hydrographic surveying of the seabed in order to establish exactly where the electric cables mm. are. So this is this goes to the the whole issue of energy security. But you're right, this kind of surveying and reconnaissance work has gone on for decades. And back in 1971, we had a defector from the KGB, Oleg Lialin, whose job was to facilitate exactly this kind of activity mm. in anticipation of sabotage and saboteurs coming ashore in Yorkshire and attacking, for example, the Filing Dales Early Warning Station. Yes. And so, I mean, as far as what we <clears throat> what we know, the Russians know, if you like, um, they have a pretty good and easy way to access the uh, uh, the maps of the seabed, if you like, as, 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 as I understand it. And the question is really whether there are other sort of undersea cables that they may not know about. And is that what they're looking for? No, they know what they want. And what they're looking for are the Internet cable landing sites uh, like at Porthcurno in Cornwall. Mm. They're interested in the whole issue of energy security. So that is alternative sources of energy, for example, wind farms uh, offshore. Mm. These are all items that can be fairly easily sabotaged if the need arose. And so this is an act preparatory to mm. in legal terms. Well, certainly in Norway, they've become a bit concerned that their oil and gas business is quite vulnerable. Um, obviously, after the Nord Stream explosion, uh, everybody's a little bit jumpy. Nobody's quite sure what the Russians might or might not do by way of either retaliation or or just another sort of uh, another expansion plan. But there's genuinely fear as well that this is what the Russians would do uh, in, in preparation, if you like, for something worse that might happen that might not happen as well. But but you know, it's all preparation for an actual war. Yes, it, it would appear based on what we've observed over the past 12 months in Ukraine that the Russians have not really developed their playbook, that all the uh, strategies and tactics that we learned about and we trained against during the Cold War uh, have remained on the books for the Russians. They haven't changed at all. You know, mm. they can't operate further than 30 kilometers from uh, a railway line. That that kind of thing right. is all very familiar to us. And what they're doing now is just simply updating the kinds of sabotage targets that they would go for if uh, a Cold War got to a hot war. Mm. It, it's, it's standard, but it is preparatory too, and it is significant and we don't like it because it is in anticipation of an act of war. Yes. And what would you say is the current state of, of sort of um, artificial intelligence stroke technology in Russia? Because we often hear conflicting reports that it's not as modern, perhaps, as, as the West is. But I'm, I'm rather sceptical of that. Well, I think it really depends uh, exactly which area you're talking about. Mm. If you're talking about cyber attacks, then we know that uh, the, the Russians have, in effect, given free reign to independent operators within the Russian Federation and allowed them to behave badly in the West and to pick their own targets. Mm. As far as I'm aware, there is no evidence of any kind of coordinated attack except against Ukraine and Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. And that's why they're, they're nervous about their neighbour. Yes, and I suppose you could say that you might understand why that would be the case. Uh, but as far as um, 
you know, our own kind of abilities to monitor what's going on in the North Sea, how, how good are they? Because I spoke earlier to another guest and, and we both agreed that our naval capabilities are not really what they were. So how good uh, uh, are our abilities to keep an eye on this? Uh, I would say better than they have ever been in history. So we have uh, several different kinds of platforms hoovering up signals. So we have the so-called rivet joint flights uh, across the Black Sea and across um, the Barents uh, and the Baltic. And this can this kind of strategy is exploiting cell phone use. Mm. And we can see a huge amount. We can build order of battle, movements, uh, individual personnel, uh, quite apart from the, the actual traffic that can be decrypted. So in, in terms of monitoring what the Russians are doing, uh, our abilities are better than ever. And it, you don't need to have overt platforms like a warship, which of course is really just a gigantic target. Mm. You can have plenty of other collection platforms, uh, including these rivet joint flights in the Black Sea. Right. Okay. Fascinating. Nigel, thanks very much indeed. We'll keep an eye on it. Obviously, Nigel West, military historian uh, and author, they're talking about the threat from the Russian ghost ships up in the North Sea, uh, which we'll be talking about, I'm sure, throughout the course of the day here at Talk TV. Coming up next, we'll take some of your calls. We'll try and find out what's going on uh, with this Dominic Raab report as well. And also, Hugh Andre's coming in uh, at the top of the hour at midday to talk to us about a very valiant and very worthwhile effort for charity, uh, which is being run today uh, with some uh, veterans army veterans uh, pushing a land rover 100 miles would you believe this is talk tv clear-headed honest opinion lively debate talk radio on the app on your smart speaker talk radio and talk tv Welcome back to the independent republican mike graham right here on talk tv apparently uh, somebody spotted a humpback whale in the channel everybody's coming in now aren't they you know it's real popular somewhere near folkestone near dover even um We'll keep you up uh, graded on that one as well. But right now, let us go to the other side of the world. Western Australia, in fact, uh, at a World Heritage Site called Ningaloo. Major Tim Peake is there because there's been something interesting happening. Uh, Major Tim, a very good uh, morning to you. Yeah, hello, Mike. Well, good morning and uh, good evening from Western Australia. Yes, um, you are. I, I was watching you a little bit earlier on. You looked as if you were in a sort of desert location, but you obviously moved now to somewhere a bit greener. Tell us uh, what you can see around you. Yes, well, you know, we've been here in Western Australia for a few nights now, spending most of the time looking up, enjoying the dark skies here um, and stargazing. But actually, today was all about the solar eclipse. Yes. It was one of the only places on mainland planet Earth where we could witness the total solar eclipse at 11.27 right. this morning. Quite an incredible event. Yeah, and an incredible sight when, wherever you can see it in the world. You, you're very lucky to have been able to, to see it at all, really. But people from all over the world were flocking down there, weren't they? Yes, this was a very rare hybrid solar eclipse. They happen about once every 10 to 14 years. Right. So thousands of people from all around the world came here um, to witness this event. And uh, and it was incredible to, to see that kind of human reaction, that human emotion behind something that's very surreal, very otherworldly. Yes, indeed. And is it true, because I've never been able to see one of those things, you know, as clearly as you've just done that. Is it true that everything kind of goes a little bit weird in the natural world, that there's, you know, sort of birds are silenced and, you know, animals stop and, and other animals run and hide? What happens? 
It's very true. And actually, it makes perfect sense when you witness it yourself, because it is such a strange thing that happens. It, it happens very quickly. The actual um, shutting off of the sun, those, mm. those kind of four or five minutes where the sun completely disappears uh, and the moon shadow comes over. All the animals go quiet. Birds come home to roost. Um, and the shadows are, are really spectacular. You look out at the horizon and you can see daylight on the horizon, but we're under this sort of big shadow of mm. darkness. Right. It's very strange, very spooky. And we're seeing people looking at it now through sort of various different tinged spectacles, I imagine. You're not supposed to look right at it, are you? Definitely not. You know, you have to use correct protective eyewear. You can really do some serious damage to your eyes if you look at the sun. So we all had the protective glasses on it. Or you can make yourself a pinhole camera or uh, just take photographs for a telescope, something like that. Yes. Well, it looks like an amazing uh, event. And what, what else happens around it? And, and when do you expect the, the next one of these to happen? So the next uh, total solar eclipse, is, I think, is next year, uh, April 2024. Um, and I think the United States actually is going to, to be able to, to witness that. Um, the next hybrid eclipse won't be till about 2031. Um, so we've got a, a long time to wait. And for the UK, I'm afraid we have to wait till about 2090 before we see the next total solar eclipse there. Yes, because I seem to remember we had one here. We sent somebody down uh, onto our sort of uh, overlooking uh, outdoor kind of balcony area and they were filming it for us. And I think I remember hearing at that time it would be 2090 for the next one. And basically, I don't think I'll be around for that, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither, unfortunately. But, uh, but you know, uh, for the people there in the UK, they'll be able to enjoy that incredible event when it happens. I think 1999 was the, uh, the last total solar eclipse in the UK, yes. down in Cornwall. Right. Now, an awful lot of interest in space these days, isn't there? Because we've got Elon Musk and the whole SpaceX program. We had a, um, a European uh, space agency a rocket fired up recently to go and find some intelligent life forms. I was suggesting that if they do find them, perhaps they can bring them back here and run, run the country with them because uh, there's not much left here in Westminster, it seems to be. <laughs> Yeah, no, we, we really are on a, a new era of space exploration. It's very exciting. Uh, in just a couple of hours' time, we hope that SpaceX's Starship will have its inaugural test flight, uh, paving the way to returning humans to the surface of the moon. That's a really important rocket right. that's going to take astronauts down to the surface. ESA's uh, JUICE mission, the European Space Agency, that is looking for signs of life on Jupiter's moons. Um, that's incredibly exciting. A lot of scientific information we'll gain for those missions. Uh, and it's incredible what is planned for the next sort of 10 to 15 years in space flight. Uh, it's a, a really exciting period. Yeah, because I'm reading in the Times today that there's a big sort of move towards space tourism and the French are going to get involved and they're going to call uh, for a luxury pressurised capsule to be created, which will be sent up to space complete with haute cuisine. <laughs> I think you're going to see a lot more uh, of space tourism. You know, as, as the cost of access to space comes down, it becomes more accessible, both for research communities, for science, for education, and, of course, for those people who wish to pay to go to space themselves. Uh, we need to make sure we continue to do it in a sustainable way um, and we regulate space so that it uh, you know, continues to help solve the problems and not add to the problems that we've got. But it's, it's really exciting that more and more people are going to have access to space. I mean, do you think there will be sort of space hotels and things in, say, my, in mine and your lifetime that people can go and stay in? I think there will be. Um, you know, commercial operators now uh, are starting to build the first privately owned 
space station in low Earth orbit. And that's actually a good thing for the National Space Agency is it frees up resources to be able to do things like the Artemis program and go further afield to the moon, mm. to Mars, um, without having to also run a space station in low Earth orbit too. So I think we are going to see that kind of thing in the next 10 to 15 years. And will it only be for the super rich, though, or will it be for everyone? I think we'll start off uh, something for the super rich. It's a bit like aviation, really. Back in the 1920s, 1930s, it was incredibly expensive to get a transatlantic flight. Uh, now it's become affordable for a much wider you know, range of the population. I think that's the same with human spaceflight. At the moment, it's very, very expensive. In 100 years' time, I think it will be accessible for many, many people. Right. And they're talking about a low-carbon sort of balloon the French, uh, they're going to talk, you've probably seen this, the Falto Celeste, uh, which is going to provide this Michelin star uh, a piece of uh, uh, a sort of food entertainment, luxury interior and the carbon footprint no bigger than making a pair, than what you get from making a pair of jeans. But the picture of it looks like it's a sort of a, gondola, a very large gondola underneath a, a very large balloon. But how do you get that up there? I'm not sure the science behind that particular uh, endeavour, but yes, I mean, it's a case of getting up to be able to see the curvature of the Earth yeah. and to have an experience of, of going into space. But part of that really is about going into orbit to actually experience weightlessness. Um, but you're absolutely right in terms of these um, uh, engineering and innovative ideas to be uh, zero carbon or low carbon. That's really important too. Mm. Rocket fuel essentially can be very clean, just hydrogen and oxygen byproduct is water. Uh, but we do need to be able to look at the uh, the impact of sending more and more things into mm. space and how we manage that and control it and make sure that space remains accessible for our future generations. Right. And, and just finally, Tim, a, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, there was some episode in space where there was a whole bunch of planets aligned that we could actually see. I didn't see them, as it turns out, I was in London. Um, anything coming up that we can be looking out for? Well, there's always interesting and exciting things to look out for on, on any evening. Um, you know, the, the space station, you can see um, the planets to look up. You'll see Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, Mars, uh, the strip of the Milky mm. Way. So there's, there's always fascinating things to be seeing in space. Um, and uh, I think uh, what's really exciting in human space flight after this Starship test flight is next year, we're hoping to launch the first crew back to the moon, not to go onto the surface, but in orbit around the moon on the Artemis II mission. Mm. That's the really next major milestone in our human space exploration programme. Okay, brilliant stuff. Tim, thanks very much indeed for staying up so late to talk to us. Major Tim Peake there, British astronaut, reporting in uh, from that World Heritage Site, Ningaloo, in Western Australia, uh, where they saw the first, uh, one of the big eclipses that only happens about once every seven to ten years. Uh, and we might see another one here until 2090, apparently. So I won't be seeing that. Uh, George from Dartford says, how many migrants have stride the humpback whale in the channel? I hope they weren't using whips to speed it on its way, or maybe they should. We'd get the eco-nutters out to stop them. Uh, in, um, what, in sort of frogman gear? That could work, couldn't it? Um, just stop whales. With an H, that is, before we start complaining. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.